Welcome to the Smart Connector, the podcast that helps entrepreneurs be the leader their ideal people love. Build your influence, wealth and success, attract others for all the right reasons and become a Smart Connector, the architect of your amazing business and life. I met Neville Wright at a business mastermind that I attended in Peterborough a few years ago. He's a very low-key, lovely and humble guy for someone who is so accomplished in business. He's achieved incredible things, having built and sold a number of businesses, one for 70 million. And in this telephone interview, he tells us all about his entrepreneurial career and love of family. So this is the Smart Connector podcast, and I'd like to welcome Neville Wright to it. Hello, Neville. Hello, Jane. So Neville has enjoyed an incredibly successful 45-year career in business, property investment, retail and building. But most people recognize him and his wife Marilyn for the sale of Kiddie Care, a baby nursery retailer which they started in 1977 and sold for £70 million to Morrison Supermarket in 2011. This was a record price for one independent shop in the depths of a recession. So what many people don't know about Neville is that prior to this, he'd also sold three nursery businesses dating back over the last 36 years, plus a variety of other businesses, including hairdressing salons, restaurants, a large house building business and a technology company. So he's an incredibly entrepreneurial guy with a really impressive track record in building and selling businesses. Is that right, Neville? Oh wow, it sounds really interesting, it does. 45 years, I can't believe it really. Yeah. It only seemed like yesterday when we started our first business, yeah, in 1974. Fantastic. Oh, wow. <laughs> so since selling Kiddie Care, you focus primarily on property development and investing the wealth that you created into a very exciting portfolio of assets. Is that right? Yes, yes. And giving some away along the, along yeah. the way. So Absolutely. Interesting. Yeah. And you've also become a best-selling author, a podcast host yourself, a mentor and a business advisor. Well, you've got to do something. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> yeah. So everything you, you turn your efforts and attention to results in success. So I would say that you have the Midas touch. But what impressed me so much when I first met you a couple of years ago was your compassion, your humility and your down to earth approach, which endears you to everyone you meet. I would say that's true as well. Thank you very much. That's, that's very nice of you to say so. <laughs> and, and, and when you say about the Midas touch, oh, if you only knew, uh, really? you've got to be right 51% of the time to be a success. And uh, there has been, you know, a lot of times when um, things haven't been a success, but there are, it's all part of the journey. Well, that's right. That's right. Okay, Neville. So, of course, everyone listening would love to hear the story of Kiddie Care, just as I did when I first met you. It is a truly amazing story of how you went from a, a small startup built around the needs of your family to a hugely successful business that was sold for 70 million. So what, what were the highlights for you of that journey? Well starting the business because it was by accident yes uh, it's like a, a lot of things 
we wanted an office. And then Marilyn says, well, what am I going to do with all this space? I've only got one desk and it's a, a house. So we decided to sell something. What could we sell? We, we hadn't got a clue, but we thought, well, we've had a baby and we bought a second-hand pram and a second-hand cot. <laughs> so obviously we knew it all. <laughs> and that's how it started. And one thing leads to another. And every day, you know, you're focused on it and you're passionate about it. And every day in our 36 years, it, it, it grew. Sometimes we could keep up with it and sometimes we couldn't. We did sell three shops along the way when we saw opportunities. Yes. We was thinking we was probably going in the wrong direction. So you rein yourself in and go on a different direction. And this is what... Uh, happened when well when we sold all all of the shops we did you know we were going in other directions I, I suppose with having ADHD every day you you're going in lots of different directions and that's and that's what happens but we did focus on that business you know and it was uh, a lifelong journey on that and it was absolutely terrific and we ended up employing 120 people uh, in one shop and it just was really, really good because you see so many shops in every high street and they think they've got to be on every high street. And in fact, you haven't. You don't need to. That was, uh, that was one of our things we focused on. We focused on what we wanted. Yes. And people would say to us, oh, why don't you open a shop in Leicester or Nottingham or um, because it will be easier for for us to get to you. Well, we didn't want that. We, we booked the trend and we did what we wanted to do. Yes. So that was a key thing to our success. Very interesting. Doing something opposite to everybody else. Contrarian, contrarian entrepreneurship. Contrarian, yeah, that's probably me. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that, that, that sounds, sounds great. So... Would you say that that's one way that you maintained the passion for your business as it grew by making sure that it, it worked for you uh, rather than just letting other people's agendas dictate the direction? We was very open-minded. When people made suggestions, very often we would go with it. But then we yes. realised that uh, what was in our hearts and our mind uh, it, it didn't fit. It was focused on primarily on what we wanted as a family, what we yes. wanted together, and then what we wanted for our children. Yes. So yes. it all had to fit round. And people ask me a lot about this thing called work-life balance. Yeah. And we didn't have any work-life balance. When I was working for people for the previous eight years before I started self-employment. So we'd got no work-life balance at all. And then when we started uh, self-employment and we both focused together on the same business, and it didn't matter what, it doesn't matter what business you're in, then our work-life balance became right because there wasn't any. It was just like, it was just normal. We were just living the life that we wanted to. Yes. So very often when people say, I haven't got a good work-life balance, I go, well, 
are you both interested, if they're married that is, are you both interested in the same thing? And generally people are not, and this is why they've got an upset balance. So if they do things together, it will come right. So, but that was just my take on it, and that's what was the success for us. That's very interesting. So that's really about alignment, isn't it? And yeah, because obviously you are aligned as a couple, but you are also aligned in terms of the direction of your business and your values. Marilyn had got strengths and I had got strengths and we both had weaknesses. So we complemented each other and we was able to help each other achieve what we wanted along the way on a daily basis. And then we brought people in who could do things that we couldn't. Yes. Yes. And I think that, again, that's part of the success. I won't say taking a chance, but you take a chance every day when you're in business. But getting people around you that, again, had their, their strong points and their weak points. And if we could help them with, overcome their weak points and their strong points was something that we couldn't do, it was a, a marriage, it was. So it's good. Yes. So, Neville... Running a family business, did you ever find that it was difficult for people that you did bring into the business? Did they ever feel as though there was a nepotism or, or that there were issues that they felt their progression was compromised because it was a family business? Or did you feel as though you, you tackled and headed off any of those issues right from the start? How, how did you manage that? We manage it by giving it a brand name rainbow warehouse for a start and then kitty care yes and having it as a corporate looking like it was a corporate yes what it was it was like the same as mother care or john lewis or somebody like that i'm not saying we were in their league because we wasn't we looked up to them yes we tried to emulate them and then what people realized was this was a business that was growing and it, it had got a lot more strengths for people to come in because they knew the owners. Yes. They talked to them every day. Yes. We was part of the big picture. We was part of the group and we wasn't dictators. We listened to them and we taught them. And education, it doesn't matter what kind of business you're in, you're in the business of education. Then opportunity. So we'd educate the people into this business that we've got, that was yes. a changing uh, business. And then we would give opportunities. So every single person knew that there was an opportunity to expand their mind, expand their knowledge, and to take on responsibilities if they wanted so it was a never-ending progression for them so no this thing about a family kind of being in control and other people being outsiders was completely wrong in our business it was totally different it was well it's between the family business which we could make decisions immediately which people like which staff liked yes and and also 
with them knowing their role, knowing their value, and the opportunities that they was able to uh, create for themselves and for other people, it worked. We, I mean, we tweaked this on a daily basis over all these years, and so it, it worked, it did really well. That sounds absolutely fantastic, and really as though you made them part of the family through the values that you brought to them and through the caring, which sounds great. It was a big family, it was. Sounds like it. Everybody was in that family, there was. So it was, it was really nice. Even all these years later, we're still in touch with majority of them. And it was really, really and it is really good, it is, yeah. That's wonderful and how rewarding as well to have that. So did you and Marilyn ever disagree on the direction of the business? And if so, how did you resolve this? Let me think about this, yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, don't, I don't know whether we disagreed. There was some heated debate sometime. We, we knew what we wanted. And it was when we went outside of those parameters of what we wanted so yes. everybody was opening, I'm talking about in the 80s, uh, 90s, everybody was opening their shops on a Sunday. Yes. So we was drawn along in this, this thing of we've got to, we've got to, we've got to. We started, and after about one month, four Sundays, Marilyn said, no, this is not right. Because we would, we would be working on Sunday. If we wasn't working in the business, we'd be working on it or we'd be going to the cash and carries and we'd be going to London buying, buying stuff. So, but she said, no, it's not fair on the staff. You know, they've got families and they, want, they need a day off. Sundays is a nice day to have with their families and uh, Mondays as well. So we stopped it. We, we just stopped working on a Sunday. I don't think that was a conflict. I think it was a discussion for about two minutes. Yes. Uh, she says, uh, that's what we're doing. I'm going fine. That, that's, that's fine. You know, and, and it worked. So they would have Sundays off and Mondays. Well, Monday, when we, after 2000, we had to work on a Monday because we were so busy on the internet. But up to 2000, we had Sundays and Mondays off and everybody was full time and everybody ha was happy. And it was a great situation because if you've got happy staff, then you've got happy customers. It works. Absolutely. And of course, that's something that Richard Branson always says as well, isn't it? That, yeah, he does. He says that, that the route to happy customers is happy staff. Well, he's right. And we've proved it. When we left, they started opening on a Sunday again, and they started opening till late at night, eight o'clock, nine o'clock at night. And then they started to open up on bank holidays where we never used to. Christmas Eve, we never used to open up. New Year's Day, we never. Easter, we didn't open. And, and we still had created the biggest independent nursery business in the UK. You know, people said we'd never do it, giving all these bank holidays off. But it, it worked. 
That's amazing. That's really, really, really powerful and testament to the power and the strength of your relationship, not just as a couple, but also as business leaders. It was, what do you, or I said, what do you want in your business and why don't you do it? We, we were driven, obviously, by trends and by what was happening, but there is a point where you can say, is this what I want in my life? Yes. If you cross over that line, you become miserable. Yep. You know, we've obviously done it lots of times because we, we've been pushing the boundaries and you push the boundaries every day in a business. Yeah. You know, you can be happy in the morning and miserable at lunchtime and happy in the afternoon. Because, <laughs> That's you know, true. The thing is, you, you can make a decision in the morning and you can realize it's wrong at lunchtime and you can change it in the afternoon. And that's how quick our business was. Yes. No messing about, no hanging about. We wanted something doing. It was done. It was absolutely done. And the people who worked for us understood that criteria. Yes. We used to work on projects probably for months. And we used to say, if it doesn't work in 10 minutes, you know, then we're back to the drawing board. And it was a very, very fast-paced moving business it was. Yes. It was, uh, we was pushing, pushing the boundaries, defying uh, logic, really. I mean, when we came into the business, we knew nothing, uh, which was absolutely brilliant because we couldn't get wrapped up like some of the businesses. There were 2,200 nursery shops when we opened ours. And a lot of them were second generation. Right. They'd learned from the first generation, like in the 1930s and 40s. And they was using the concept, using that, what they had been taught. But of course, it was the 1970s and 80s and times had changed. And jobs wasn't changing with changing environment. And so we were very lucky because we knew nothing and uh, people used to say, no, you, you can't do that. You can't do this or you can't do that. You have to put prams away for nine months and you have to do this and you have to do that. And we go, no, we don't want to. We don't want to do it. And so we're not. And it worked. Yeah, well, I, clearly, clearly it worked. And of course, the business landscape is always changing, isn't it? So in a way, the, the fact that you didn't have any precedent probably made you a lot more responsive to what was happening at that particular time without any of that stuff that had happened before. In the 80s uh, and 90s, when people was rapidly expanding into every town, with, so every town, every high street looked the same. Yes. In it, people in the trade our suppliers and uh, customers couldn't understand why we had got one shop and they couldn't see the value in it they was preaching about shops that you have four or five people working in all over the country well why not have a hundred people working in one and then you're all together you're all singing off the same hymn sheet hymn sheet you you all got your the same values so you're not separate you know you're not a different entity all over the country you're you're one and and each of those staff had got access to us because our door was always open yes yeah that makes a lot of sense neville 
They all knew everybody who worked for the company. Every single person knew every single person. Yes. It was all cogs. We, we've got lots of different departments, and each of them worked kind of independently. To yes. Her, but they married each other. That's the thing. Each department overlapped another department, even though it was a separate department, had separate staff and they had separate ways of going on. But they each married up and everyone was in tune with the other. Yes. To, it made the customer have a, a seamless experience. Yeah, yeah. And if they went to one person and then went to a different department for something else like prams and then went to the cock department or the bedding department, they would hear the same story, the same philosophy, the yes. same customer service. Whereas if you've got 50 shops, it is an awful job to get that across to the customer. Yes, I'm sure it is. Jobs because there's some brilliant ones, you know, and we didn't want to go down that route. So, Neville, how, how did you choose your employees and was there a particular type of person that you that you looked for? That's an interesting question. The time when we was expanding, everybody else was expanding. Yes. So there was very, very little uh, choice. So it's a point of... When you're going from 30 staff to 40 staff, you know, you're putting 20% on a year, whatever it is, you can't be choosy. So we would take on 20 people, and, and the majority of people, to be quite honest, shop work is just a filler in between, shall we say, a real job to them. Yeah. Because a lot of people didn't class shop work as a real you know, vocation or job. And we had to find the ones that did marry up to the job. And very often it was 20 people and you get one who would stay. And of course, that's, you know, you accepted that. People was going through and some people said, I can't believe that I like this job. I didn't, I only came because I hadn't got a job and I needed the money. And yet they stopped with us 15 years. And some of them stayed about 15 minutes and said, yeah, yeah. well, in the interview, I said I could go without cigarettes all day, but, you know, it's been 15 minutes and I can't. So therefore, you know, <laughs> no smoking policy. And, and so I'm going. So it, it, it took all sorts. It was a very interesting. Everybody played their part, whether they stayed for 15 minutes or 15 years. Yes. <laughs> oh, so how did you deal with underperformers or, or people for whom the business wasn't a great fit if they didn't leave of their own volition? Because they worked in teams. Yes. The team sorted them out. And so therefore, you know, I can say something to somebody, but if one of their teammates said the same thing, it would come across a lot different. Yeah. I'd be coming across... I don't know, maybe aggressively or whatever, or their teammates would come over as a, a mate and just say, this job's not suitable for you. It's one of those things. When you are working with a team, yes. you've got to keep up with them or you've got to, you're part of it and it's a set. Because there was no excess staff. There was always never enough staff. Yes. You never get enough. So there was always pressure. 
Yes. Somebody who doesn't like it or somebody who's, um, if you're saying that, uh, how do you get on with lazy people, they, they wasn't there for very long because their team couldn't be doing with it. Their team looked after them. Uh, we always used to give uh, new people a buddy for six weeks. Yeah. Uh, who was there to help them. I won't say protect them because uh, everybody was protected. It was a protected environment. Everybody was there to help them and to train them and to get them to become responsible. And if yes. they didn't want to become responsible, then I'm afraid that job was not for them. Yeah. And, and their team sorted it out. Their manager did. That was a good way of doing it, actually. People going, I worked for you. Do you remember? I worked for you for a week. I hated it. But... <laughs> Uh, and then they go to another place, or some of them say, I worked for you for a year. I hated every minute of it. And then, and then they say, but the job I got was even worse. One of the things that we did was teach responsibility. Yes. So responsibility for the other staff, responsibility for the business, responsibility for the customer. And so it goes on. And then when they leave and and they used to go to other places that didn't give them responsibility, then they knew how good the job was. Yes. They didn't like in the first place. So, you know, it, it has helped a lot of people along the way, even if they think they didn't like it. Yeah, that's amazing. So, so Neville, why would you say people are, are so important in business? Hey, look, I'm dyslexic. I need somebody to be with me to make all the notes, to do the emails, to do the work. Lot, oh, lots and lots of things. They're so important. I'm only just a, you know, part of the team and another cog in the wheel. Yes. Without all the people who came and worked with us, everyone was essential. And I, and I always start with saying I praised our cleaner our toilet cleaner every day for years and years and years because the first thing when somebody's traveled to our shop, you know, and they're pregnant, what's the first thing they want? They want to go to the toilet. So we had immaculate toilets because that cleaner understood that she was a vital part of the business. Yes. Once a customer had gone in there and they come out and they go, those toilets are the cleanest I've ever been in. You know, they're, they're nicest toilets I've ever been in. This sets the scene for them to come and buy all their nursery equipment. Absolutely. So, you know, so every single person, whether they're a buyer or whether they're on maintenance or picking and packing, they're all essential. And each person... Well, why do you have them? You can't do without them. And so they're essential to a business. And any business that thinks they're not, they won't have a business if they don't understand that. Well, I mean, clearly, you don't just understand that, Neville, but you made them feel it. And I think that is the difference, really, between a people-orientated business that is successful through their people, because the leaders make them feel valued and make them feel important. And that's the thing that's coming through for me about it your approach. It was important because, yeah. I mean, the photographer, I couldn't do what the photographer did. I couldn't do what all the programmers were doing. I probably could if I learned these things, but then I wouldn't be running the business. 
yes have the vision for the future whether the future is this afternoon or in 20 or 30 years time i wouldn't have had that vision i wouldn't have had the time so therefore i couldn't do the photography i couldn't do the video i couldn't do the presentations that uh, we've got for the customers you know it's it's something that a person can learn but when you're building a business you haven't got the luxury of having the time to do any particular job what you're employing people to do because um, you're pushing the business along yes so Neville what what advice would you give about people in business to your younger self because I had a problem, I had quite a lot of problems when I, when I was young. I really should have left school a lot earlier, a few years earlier than I did. I left at 15, but I really should have gone out into the world a lot earlier because school wasn't doing me any good at all. Yes. I was just in fear of being there. So, and, and then when I left school, uh, all my family uh, were in jobs. And really, I could have looked after myself from leaving school because I'd always got an errand boy's job or whatever, gardening or whatever, when I was at school. I think stand still, think, what, do you, what are you doing? When I mean stand still, I don't mean sit on your ass and do nothing. I mean, you've got to be doing something all the time. There's something got to be in you to make you... And, and one of the main things is money. So... I wanted money, I did, but I couldn't read and write. So I had to do manual work, practical stuff. I think you've just got to get on with it. And a lot of people think they've got to get a job and stay. I had 17 jobs and I think it was the best thing for me. I would say to any young person, just go, just go and get a job and learn, put your 100% focus into that job whether you stop with it a, a week or a day but learn as much as you can and then go on to another thing and another and another and help people and then you will find something that you can do that will make you money and you will begin to love it then I mean I started as a, off as a window cleaner at 24 years old I never cleaned a window in my life the only reason I did it was because I hadn't got anything to eat and window cleaning was the cheapest way of starting up a business. I remember <laughs> on the window cleaning round, I had a window cleaning business, which is a completely different thing. It, it developed into a property maintenance business because that's what cleaning windows is. Yes. Maintenance. So I didn't cocoon myself in a, a niche where I'm a window cleaner and I have a window cleaning round because there's a ceiling to how many windows you can do in a day, how many in a week, and there's a ceiling on the amount of money you can get. So calling it a window cleaning maintenance business meant I could do anything and there was no ceiling to what I could earn. Maybe passion comes along and you know you find find yourself. Oh that's amazing. Well, well, listen, I, I, think, I think our time's up now, Neville, but I just wanted to say thank you so much for your amazing answers and um, your wisdom and insight. It's been such a pleasure to talk to you today, and thank you so much for, for joining us on, on this podcast. Thank you for letting me, and you're very welcome. 
Thanks for listening to the Smart Connector podcast. If you've enjoyed this episode, why not head over to janebaylor.com and order a copy of my free report on building your personal brand. I'd love to connect with you on social media. And finally, don't forget to like and subscribe to my podcast so that you never miss a show. Thanks for listening in and see you soon.